You know, maybe I'm like you and you're like me, but I have a love-hate relationship with my alarm clock. Anybody else out there? You know, you love it because, hey, it gets you up when you need to get up at that dire moment where you got to get to that place or get on that road before the traffic or hit that vacation time. And then you hate it because you forgot to turn it off and it woke you up during a coronavirus when we're all locked in and could have slept in and you didn't. I get it. Alarm clocks are important and man, they can be super irritating because we just, we wake up and some of you guys are gifted. I don't get you, but you're gifted. You have the ability to sleep through anything, including an alarm clock. I've known a few of you people out there. It's a superpower and a super curse all at the same time. But what we see though, is that some of you guys, man, you're startlers, right? You don't even need an alarm clock. It's just your husband or your wife moves just enough. And you're like, <gasps> you're like, wake up and you freak out. Others of you, you're like me. You're like, you do this, the arm flap. And you're like, turn that thing off. And you're smacking the table or wherever that alarm clock is. Or there's been times where I do the arm, the slow arm crawl, right? You reach out, and you're just knocking everything off. I've literally broken cups doing that, trying to find that alarm clock. It's awful. But alarm clocks are a necessary thing to wake us up in the morning and get us going. That's why I'm always wondering, who in the world invented the snooze button? Let's be honest, like it's the torture button. I don't want to hear that button, that, that sound. I want to hear that four more times and yet that's exactly what happens. It wakes me up four more times like I'm gonna get better sleep or something. And so inevitably we hit that snooze button and we hit it again and eventually we finally turn it off and we either keep sleeping or we wake up in a rush because we hit it too many times. Now we're gonna be late. We're rushing faster than we should have. It was just a bad idea. Now here's the thing. Whether you have a superpower to sleep through your alarm clock, whether you have the snooze button to hit, there is one alarm that I wanna warn you you should never hit the snooze on and you should never sleep through. Because when we get a wake up call from God, when he sends the alarm clock going to get our attention, man, we cannot sleep through it. And we cannot be a people who are hitting snooze and just, yeah, God, whatever. Yeah, God, whatever. And yet many of us right now, I believe, are doing that. Because I think what we're sitting in in, very, in a very real way, in the middle of this coronavirus, in the middle of our quarantine, is an attempt by God to wake us up. An attempt by God to get our attention. And some of us may be hitting that snooze button. Some of us may be sleeping, but the best thing that we can do is to pay attention and respond. In fact, this is very much like God. God loves to send wake-up calls. He's done it in all kinds of cultures throughout all of history, and we're going to look at one of those. In fact, I'd ask you right now in your home where you're at, grab a Bible and uh, start flipping over to the book of Acts. Now, if you're new to the Bible, the book of Acts is uh, on the New Testament side of your Bible. The big part is the old, and you move to the back half, and you'll find the New Testament. If you see a bunch of numbered 1 Corinthians, things like that, or we go to your left. If you see a bunch of names like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, go to your right. You'll find Acts right there in the middle. You can open it up. We're going to be looking at chapter 19. We're going to be going through verses 11 through 20. Now, if you're new with us, and you've never been in the book of Acts before, this is an interesting book. It is a history book. And it's been written by a man named Luke, who was a physician. So I'll call him Dr. Luke. But he was a physician who was on a team of missionaries uh, with a man named Paul. Now, when Paul's arrested, it's likely that there was a Roman official that asked him to write down the history of the church. And so Dr. Luke sat down and began to evaluate and examine the source materials he had. And he wrote his first 
whole book. It would be a giant scroll in which was the biography of Jesus. We know today that is called the Gospel of Luke. The second book that he wrote is what we call the book of Acts. It's a history of the church about the 25 years from when Jesus ascended or rose from the dead and ascended into heaven all the way to when the Apostle Paul would be arrested. And it's this Apostle Paul that we're following around. Paul is a man who has once rejected the church and rejected Jesus, even killing Christians. After he met the resurrected Jesus, became the number one proponent of the church, pressing it in all kinds of directions. And Dr. Luke is focused on him. And where we find Paul at this time, here in this chapter, is a place called Ephesus. So if you're there with me, he's in Ephesus. It's a major city in a place called Asia Minor. Now, Asia Minor does not include China. In fact, what we see here is this is Asia Minor. We would know this as modern-day Greece and modern-day Turkey. And Ephesus is right here. It's this small little town to us. It's a big city, a port city, very important, the capital of the Asia Minor area. Now, Dr. Luke is telling us that Paul's been there, and he's been preaching, and he's been uh, speaking a a lot. In fact, verse 10 tells us that this continued his preaching for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, in the midst of this preaching, in the midst of this stuff, Paul is going to be announcing it to a particular culture. And we got to get this for a minute because this culture is interesting. Ephesus is actually the capital of all the magic in the world. So it'd be like the magic capital. Now, I'm not talking about Las Vegas magic. Woo, you know, David Copperfield and stuff like that. No, I'm talking about like spiritual magic, the kind of magic that was used to manipulate spiritual beings, to call for luck, to move the forces of fate. And so we go like, that's weird. What are you talking about? Because we're really used to magic being like Illuminaris, you know, funny Greek words or funny Latin words with a little like wand waving or something. Totally different kind of magic. And what we're looking at here is best explained by another culture. You see, I know of a culture that's out there and they value this odd paper. And what's interesting about this culture is this paper has specially, special markings all over it. And in fact, there are some papers that are more powerful than the other papers. And so they'll collect these papers and put them in different orders and put them in different ways. In fact, they have little amulets as well, little metal pieces that are, that are carved in and stuff like that. And they'll carry these things around. They got special little holders for them. And when they go places, they'll use this paper. And when they give it, it's like a powerful message to whoever they give it to because that person goes and does something or gives them something or they'll go do something to get these papers because it's sort of whoever has the most of these papers has the most power. Some people have kind of set aside the papers and they've, they've opted instead for like a, an odd little rectangular wafer that's been engraved upon. And they'll take this little, like, tra- this little wafer and they'll take it and they'll, they'll put it in their little altars and they'll pull it out and they'll think it's charged and has this power that if they touch certain other altars, then they can take stuff out of stores or enter into... Now, what I'm talking about is money, right? I'm giving you an example. If we were to step back and look at what we do with money, we think money is a currency that has a power to move people and to move things or your credit card or your gift card. Now think of that with magic. What they're doing in the ancient culture is they believed that these magical spells, these amulets that they would have on scrolls and amulets that they would own and hang in their house or on themselves or these special spells that they would put together were like currency in the spiritual world. If they put the right currency together, if they put the right things together, then they could move the spirit beings to act against somebody or for themselves. 
And so this is the vision and the way they believed life worked. And it was working for them. In fact, so well that people flocked to Ephesus to buy all kinds of amulets, to buy all kinds of magical scrolls, to get all kinds of information and books on how to control the spiritual world. Especially, and when we talk about spiritual world, we mean as Christians, the demonic. And so it was calling upon demons, spiritual beings, and moving them about. And this is the world that Paul has just walked right into. And what's fascinating is in the middle of all this magic, in the middle of all this currency to move to spiritual beings through power or whatever you want, God is going to send a wake-up call. Now let's take a look at this. We start off here, it says, verse 19, in chapter 19, verse 1, it says, And it happened that while... Actually, it's verse 11, sorry. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, this is very fascinating to me, because last time I checked, any miracle is extraordinary, right? And here he says they're extraordinary miracles. These are Miraculous miracles. These are above and beyond kind of miracles. They don't happen every day. And this is kind of weird stuff. What's going on is that the people seem to be sneaking up next to Paul. And they've seen Paul cast out a demon. They've seen Paul heal people. And while he's working, making tents and working the leather and doing the thing that he did as a tent maker, he would be sweating. And he would take a rag and he'd dab his head and he'd set it down. And he probably turned away and some guy snuck up, grabbed it and ran off to his friend. And that guy got healed or ran off and grabbed his apron that he'd be working where all that leather stuff has been touching his skin. They grabbed it, ran off. They thought it was charged with power. Sort of like you and I think our gift cards are charged with the ability to buy something. They thought it was charged with the power. And they run off and suddenly demons are fleeing and people are getting healed. And what's weird is Paul's not doing this on purpose. It says God was doing these things. Notice that. God is the one who is doing extraordinary miracles. Now let's pause real quick here. These are extraordinary. I know there's a lot of charlatans on television, on the internet that want to tell you, buy my little special prayer cloth, buy this thing that I've sweated on, and you'll be healed and your money will multiply and all that stuff. Look, Paul doesn't promote these things. God was meeting the people in a very specific way. God was there to share the gospel with these people, and he was there to empower Paul's message. Remember, he's preaching continuously. People are seeing this. And as we share the gospel, God will show its relevance. God will be the one who makes it relevant to our culture. Our job is to preach the gospel. We don't need to run out there and shout and scream that we've got miraculous powers and these things. That doesn't need to happen. God will do the miracles. God will do what he's going to do. And he still does. But our job is to preach the gospel and God will make it relevant. We don't need to change our theology. We don't need to change what God said. We need to go with what God said. He'll make his gospel relevant. He'll make his gospel powerful. And this is super important because what God is doing in this case is he's trying to wake these guys up. He is trying to help them see. And what's interesting is he's using a very abnormal way to do that. Now, I don't know about you, but we need to understand that God is really out to reach these people, and we don't want to knock the way God may reach a non-Christian. Sometimes God will reach people in the strangest things, like with sweat, you know, sweat bands and stuff like that. That's just weird. I've met people who literally came to Christ through some of these faith healers and these other people, but I believe it wasn't the charlatan, but it was their faith that brought them to Christ. And while they've done away with those things and followed Jesus, um, God still used them. 
God still used those people in that way. In the same way, God here is bringing people to himself through these, these aprons and sweat rags and all this stuff. It's much like in the Muslim world right now, many people are being led to Christ through dreams. Now they're asking God if, if Jesus is real and Jesus shows up in their dream, tells them to go to this corner and they meet this, um, this missionary or somebody like that. And what's fascinating is one of these men who, who came to Christ this way, his name was Nabil Qureshi. He died a couple years ago. He became an apologist for Christianity, though he was born Muslim. Raised in a Muslim home, he had grown up and went to college and met a Christian in his dorm, and they began to debate and work things out. And through that time, he came to realize that Christianity was telling the truth about Jesus, but he couldn't make the move. He wasn't ready to give his life. And so he was saying, God, you got to show me. And one night he had a dream. And when he woke up the next morning, he called his mom. He recounted this very odd dream. And his mother went over to the bookshelf, pulled off their Muslim uh, teacher who had interpreted dreams and started reading what all the imagery was in that book. And all of it locked together to pointing him to Jesus. Now, what's interesting about Nabil is he didn't take that book of dream interpretation and say, man, that's it. This is, this is the Bible. No, he knew that God was using that in an extraordinary way to bring him to faith. And God may have done some extraordinary things to bring you to faith. God may be doing extraordinary things right now to try to wake you and bring you to faith. Can I just be honest? You may be watching this because you have nothing better to do on Sunday morning and somebody shared it with you. Can we, can we think maybe, can we just take on the possibility that God might be trying to get your attention? That the alarm clock is blaring, that he is trying to wake you up, get you locked into where you can watch the internet. What a weird way that God might be trying to get your attention. And yet he loves you that much. He may be actually be doing just that thing. See, we don't want to knock how God begins to grab people because God has brought, brought people to himself in a lot of different ways. And so we want to continue to encourage you guys to see that maybe God might be using this crisis, might be using this opportunity to wake you and bring you near him. Now, what happens though is God's not going to leave us at this simplistic like, oh, I need a sweat rag to wipe my brow and be saved by Jesus. No, no, this starts to become a bigger deal. In fact, some people start to grab this powerful idea of Jesus and using it in a way that made sense in their culture like magic. In fact, that's where we pick up from here. We jump into the next verse and we find this out. It says, then, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Now you're going, what in the world is a Jewish exorcist? Now in the time period, Jews were the best at exercising demons. They were considered to have the best magic. And they were in hot, like uh, they, were, they were in the... They were the one everybody wanted. And what happens is they're grabbing these people and they're bringing them to Ephesus. And these guys are famous. These are, these are the ones who are doing the best at it. And so next thing you know, these guys are going, this is a great name, Jesus. We're going to put this into our list. We're going to use this name. This is not unheard of. In fact, as we've dug up in Alexandria, Egypt, we've actually found medallions and scrolls and papyri that have the name of Jesus listed with all kinds of other gods because his name became known for casting out demons and powerful. Now, it's, that's, that's interesting because we find that in archaeology. So this is here, and these guys are going, hey, this name is powerful. Let's use it. And so they say, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So they're telling this guy who's been possessed by demons that this, need, this demon needs to get out of them by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Huh. Now, that's kind of interesting. 
we find out a little bit more who they are. There's seven sons, so seven of these guys are in this room doing this, of a Jewish high priest named Sceva. So we call them the seven sons of Sceva. Sounds like a rock band. It probably is somewhere. But what we see here is these seven sons of Sceva are related to some Jewish high priest. We don't know who that is. We don't even know if that's just a name they gave themselves to give themselves some street cred. We, we're not sure. But they were known. And they were doing this, using this name of Jesus in this way. Well, they come upon this guy. They're standing in this room. They're trying to cast out this demon. But the evil spirit answers them. And this gets really interesting. The evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know. Note that. And Paul I recognize. But who are you? In fact, we got to read it this way. Jesus I know. And Paul I recognize. But who are you? Welcome to the spooky side of the Bible, right? I mean... This is, this is freaky. Oh, yeah, we know Jesus. We know Paul. <laughs> Who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. That last line's why I didn't give this to the youth guys because they would just go off on that part of the story. But the point is these guys were ashamed and everybody heard about it. And yet Jesus' name, while it was powerful to heal people and cast out demons and stuff through, through rags, suddenly doesn't work. For these guys, what's going on here? What's going on here is Jesus isn't an amulet against problems. He's a person to know. He's not an amulet to solve our problems. And let's be honest, that's where some of us are at with Jesus. Years ago, I sat in a group of people and we were having a conversation with a couple of atheists over morality. And as we were trying to explain why we believe the morality was grounded in the Bible, one of the ladies just started mocking us like, oh, so God says and the magic happens. You know, you know, you need something. You just ask God. He brings it down. One of the guys, years later, I would sit with him in a panel with a, with a Muslim and me. And, and he would say he doesn't like prayer because it's just magic thinking. And what's interesting is in some ways he's completely wrong and in some ways he's completely right. You see, some of us came to Jesus because we made a bargain. We said, God, if you'll get me out of this, if you'll save my marriage, if you'll just help my child heal this, and he did. And you followed Jesus because of that. In fact, you got baptized, maybe you walked an aisle and you got in that water because you're like, Jesus, help me with my job. Help me not get this coronavirus. Whatever it is, you ran to Jesus because you needed him to fix something. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. That's a good thing. And if you need Jesus to fix something right now, you should ask him. He's willing to do it. The problem is we got to move beyond that. He's not just an amulet against problems. He's not just our magic genie up in the sky. And we go, God, I got an issue. God, I need something. God, thank you for what you gave me. God, forgive me. If that's the whole locus of your prayer life, you're missing the relationship part. Because what he's saying here is to this little group of people in Ephesus, what he's telling them is, I'm not some magic force to be used by you. What I am is I'm a person. And that's why the demons focused on, I don't know you. See, these guys said, it's the Paul, it's this Paul guy, and his Jesus. They didn't have any relationship with Jesus. And that's the thing. We need to have engaged with Jesus because we can get engaged in Christian practices in a magic way. You can think God's not going to answer you because you didn't say Jesus in Jesus' name. You think maybe, maybe the bad things are happening you to, to you today and, and to, this, to you in, in town because you haven't served at church enough or you haven't read your Bible enough or you haven't been in prayer enough and asked him for the right things. And that's magic thinking. We need to understand this isn't like karma. This isn't some spiritual thing that's going on. This is somebody to get to know. 
See, we can even engage in serving. We can even engage in giving. We can engage in all kinds of things because we think somehow we're going to get some spiritual blessing or I can use faith and I can say I got faith to move mountains and, and pour out like some magic power. None of this is in the Bible. It's magic thinking. We have to realize is God's calling us beyond the magic thinking. We can't just use him as our tool. He's not our amulet. In fact, Jesus made it very clear that way uh, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that, uh, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? That's a big deal. Did I not preach an amazing sermon? Did I not cast out demons in your name? Like what we just saw. Uh, did I not do many mighty works in your name? Man, I served all of these people at this event, this VBS and da-da-da-da. And Jesus says, that's all nice, but I never knew you. And here's the thing. It's not about what you do. It's not about the power flowing through you. It's about do you know him? So we can have all kinds of spiritual things. We can have all kinds of spiritual practices. You can, you can try the yoga and you can do the prayer meditation where you empty yourself out. But here's the thing. True spirituality, the real spirituality in this world requires a relationship. And it's a relationship with God. Jesus says, you need to know me. There are lots of people out there in this world who are using Jesus' model of life. They're caring for people. They're calling people out of addiction. They're calling people from homelessness. They're doing all these things. But what we're discovering is when you remove Jesus from it, it's just not as powerful. In the same way, there are lots of people who are using Jesus like a magical token. And in the end, it's just not going to be there because God's not out to be our magic token. God is here to meet us in the middle of this coronavirus, to meet us in the middle of all of these things because he wants us to have a relationship with him. If you want to have spirituality, you don't need a drug high. You don't need marijuana. You don't need to get into some kind of spiritual ecstasy state because that's not going to lead you to Jesus. It's going to lead you to a different spirit. Spirituality. See, all spirituality is relational. You're either going to run into a spiritual being like a demon, or you're going to meet God. And the spiritual beings that are out there, they'll welcome you in. They would love to be in your life. They would love to tell you they give you power and all these kind of things. And you can sit in what you think is a spiritual practice. You can sit there and, and take those crystals and put them on your skin and do all that kind of stuff if you want to. But the bottom line is, there is no spirituality that happens apart from a relationship. And Jesus says, you want the best spirituality? You want the greatest spirituality? Then it's a relationship with him. Everything makes sense then. Everything comes together when we get to that point. Now, this fact that you had to know Jesus rocks their world. And it just doesn't rock the Ephesian city. It rocks the church. Notice how this continues. So these guys run off naked. Everybody gets to hear about this. And so it became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Nobody's left out here. Everybody's hearing about this. It's flowing through everywhere. This name of Jesus is powerful. Even the demons know it, but you can't mess with it. You can't manipulate it. And here's what happens. Fear fell upon them all. This is important. One of the things that has to happen is when God brings a wake-up call, when God is ready to act to wake us up, and God can act to wake up people, and he is doing it now. When this happens, what he is doing, my friends, is he's trying with everything to call us to know him. He's done it in the past. 
He called Israel to come know him. They didn't want to, so he sent Babylon. He was telling the church, listen, this ain't a game. Don't just um, play games with my grace. And so Ananias and Sapphira play a game and they die. And the church wakes up. God's trying to give a wake-up call to these people. And guess what? I believe he may be trying to give us a wake-up call in this coronavirus. He's put us in the midst of, a, of an amazing situation where we have to judge and figure out what's going on. We've been stripped away from all these places. We've been stripped away from all of our sports, all of our events, stripped away from family, stripped away from each other. Maybe he's trying to do something to wake us up. Maybe he's trying to get us to hear that he's here. You go, well, is God, is God really the powerful enough against the coronavirus? Is he the one who's going to take it over? I mean, I don't see anybody getting healed. Again, he's not our amulet. Maybe he's not going to heal anybody because he wants us to be in the situation where we got to stay close to each other. I don't know. But I think there's an alarm sounding. We at least need to pay attention. What is God leading us to? Where is God taking us? In this case, he woke them to respect Jesus' name, that he was powerful, that he wasn't something to mess with. In many cases, maybe we're starting to realize that God is powerful. He's the one over all the diseases and all the stuff that we talked about a couple weeks ago and is making us wake up to, you know, Jesus has got this. He is above these things. He can heal and he will do things for you. Look, again, I challenge you, if you're not a Christian, ask Jesus to reveal himself to you. Ask him to do something on your behalf. God works in this way. Oftentimes to show you that he's serious because he's calling you to himself. But again, he wants you to know him, not to use him. He wants you to know him, not to use him, especially us in the church, especially those of us who live as we follow Jesus. You see, the second part was it said that his name was extolled. Look at that again, right down there in your text. Verse 17, last line, the name of Lord Jesus was extolled. What's that word extolled? It means to be made valuable. It means to increase the value so much that the people were amazed by it. And so God wants you to know him. God wants you to see that he is valuable. And when that happens, especially in the church, it begins to move in us. It begins to make us act. And here's how the church in Ephesus acted. Let's continue forward here. Verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together, burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, this is like millions of dollars in our time period. But here's the point. You're going like, man, they're burning books. What's going on? This is a voluntary situation because the church has come to this place where suddenly there were people practicing magic in the background while holding on to Jesus too. Jesus was part of their magic act. Jesus was part of their magic power. And you may be adding Jesus into your life. He may be just your amulet to get you out of trouble while you're staring at that pornography. He may be Jesus who's helping you get out of that problem while you're out there eating like a pig and not doing what you should be doing with your life. He may be the one sitting there and helping you get out of the problem while you're stealing money from your boss. Guys, Jesus ain't going to allow you to add him into these scenarios. He may have helped you, but now it's to see that he needs to be the primary one, not this other stuff. And so the church suddenly wakes up and says, we can't have two things. We need to get rid of this magic. We need to get rid of these books. Jesus is more powerful than this. Jesus is better than this. And this is why it's important. We need to be the kind of people who see Jesus so valuable, so important, so much better than what we have. They're willing to get rid of it. 
The author of Hebrews put it this way. The people of faith strove and strove to follow after God. They were willing to throw off all kinds of things. And so in chapter 12, the author of Hebrews encourages us. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all these past faithful people, let us also lay aside every weight. That's like a burden, a hindrance and sin. So whatever the weight is and sin is, they're different things which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So there are two things here to lay off. The first thing is sin. Guys, some of us are holding on to sins and trying to follow Jesus. And when you fall into your sins, you're trying to use Jesus as a magic talisman to get you out of the problem. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to wake you up. Guess what? I'm taking away all those things. Maybe you're a workaholic. We'll get into that in a minute. Maybe you're in a situation where you're taking marijuana and your dispensary is closed. Maybe it's time for you to weigh out, is Jesus more valuable than the marijuana? Is Jesus more valuable than the drug, the, the Adderall? Is he more valuable than, than whatever it is that you're using because you've got him attached to that? Is Jesus more valuable than the pornography, than sleeping with your girlfriend, than sleeping with your boyfriend that you're not married to? Even, and, you know, these are the things that Jesus is saying, we got to be pure in the church. Now, if you're not in the church, this doesn't apply to you. But if you're in the church, man, we should savor Jesus so much. We're going to push away anything that hinders us, any of these sins. Any of that sexual immorality, any of that greed, any of that stuff that is holding us back. Now, we're not going to be perfect at it, but we need to be putting it apart. We need to be putting it away. And the church needs to be purified. And what if God is calling to the church to wake us up and say, guys, there's sin in your life. Look at the entertainment you're indulging in now. Look at the things you are doing. Your, your, your marriage is breaking. Your kids don't know you. You would rather escape and go to work. That's called workaholism. Maybe what God is calling us to do is to examine the weights and the hindrances. So what he's doing right now is he's making you fast. And when you fast something and your body craves it, it's a good indication that you're locked into it in a way that might not be healthy. Right now you're having to fast things. Then maybe what Jesus is doing is removing them from you to show you, to call you, to saying, come here, I will show you that I am more satisfying than all of that food. I'm more satisfying than that alcohol. I'm more satisfying than those cigarettes. I'm more satisfying than that vaping. I'm more satisfying to you than any of that entertainment. More satisfying than those books. More satisfying than your worry. More satisfying, more powerful than your boss. Come, be with me. Set these things aside. Run the race as these Ephesians did. They threw it down. And they were ready to put anything down to follow Jesus. I love the story of Beckett Cook. He's a man who um, just recently I've listened to his testimony a couple times. He, a gay man living in um, West Hollywood, ha having opportunities to hang out at some of the biggest celebrities' homes and their swimming pools, going to their parties. And one day he's with his partner down at a Starbucks in West Hollywood, and he's sitting there enjoying a drink. And um, next thing you know, a couple Christians show up and plop a Bible down, only a, a table away. And he'd never seen a Bible in West Hollywood in his life. And on a dare, he went over and talked to them, engaged with them. And they were even honest to say they thought that homosexuality was a sin. And, and that kind of blew his mind. He's like, I've never heard anything like this. And they said, but hey, you're welcome to church. They invited him. And that Sunday he went. And he says, what happened in that service was like God woke him, grabbed him, pulled him in, said, I love you. This is, I want this for you. And he was weeping over the wonder of who God was. And he gave his life to Christ and he abandoned everything else. Now he lives as a celibate, faithful man to Jesus. And people ask him all the time, 
that doesn't seem fair that you have to be celibate and don't get to have a relationship of love and, and you're a gay man. And how do you deal with that with Jesus? He says, what are you talking about? I get to know my maker. I get to know my creator. He is so much greater than anything I ever had. And when he says that, guys, we are talking about the heart of the church. See, the heart of the church, the heart of the Christian, as in Ephesus, is to say, man, God, you are so much greater, so much more satisfying, so much more amazing than any of this other stuff. We don't give it up because of legalism and laws and rules. We don't give it up because, oh, whatever, I got to give it up. No, we give it up because he's so much more satisfying. And what maybe God is doing is giving you a wake-up call in all of this to say, will you come to me so I can show you I'm more satisfying? I'm giving you the space. I'm giving you the opportunity. I'm giving you the chance to get on your knees in that place and to meet me, to talk to me. I'm giving you a chance to read that Bible, to spend some time to ponder and think. I'm giving you that chance to get into some studies where you couldn't in the past to bring your family along. I'm giving you this chance. Come and meet me. All the, all the distractions are gone. I pushed them out. It's time to set these things aside. Come meet with me. What an opportunity. And all the branches are a chance to put away all that junk. Get rid of it. Throw it out. Delete it. Remove it. Pursue your Lord. He is here. He's given us a wake-up call to call us to him. And when that happens, when that happens, things begin to move. In fact, the last line, as you can see, is that it says the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. And that means it was moving in the hearts of the people and moving in the city. Now, what I want to challenge you guys to is that maybe you're watching this. And what God is doing is he's got you at this moment in a wake-up call. He's brought you to a place where you're scared. He's brought you to a place where you're anxious. He's got you to this place where you need him. And he's ready to meet you right there. But he's not just ready to meet you to answer your need. He's ready to save you and bring you into a relationship. Maybe where you're at right now is just to begin to say, God, I need you. I need you to heal. I need you to save my job. I need you that. Maybe that's as far as you are right now. God, I believe, is willing to answer. Maybe he's done that for you and you're ready today instead to say, God, I want to know you. But here's the thing. God's opened the way to know him. And that is through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, what held us away from God was our own brokenness, our own sin, and our own mess. All these desires we wanted to hold on to. And instead, Jesus came and he bore our punishment for those things on the cross. He bore our sin on the cross. And he did that because he knew there was no other way to erase the mess that kept us from God. So he did that for you. He did that for me. And as Jesus bears our sins on the cross and we receive that, we're forgiven of our sins. Right where you are today, you can be forgiven of your sins too because here's the beauty. God doesn't ask you to change yourself. He doesn't ask you to make yourself better right now. Instead, he says, come to me just as you are. Come to me where you're at. I will remove your sins. And then he rose from the dead. He says, and I will give you a new life, a new start, a new beginning. And this wake-up call may be so that you would hear this, that you could have a new beginning with God where you know God, where he changes and transforms you. He walks with you now through it, not as your talisman to save you, not as your magic being, but as the God who is there to get to know 
in every circumstance, in every place. But it begins today by you receiving a gift, and that is the gift of Jesus. And so right where you're at in your home, you can do that right now. You can bow your head right here. You simply say, Jesus, I want to trust you've taken my sins on the cross. I receive this gift of the forgiveness of sins. I ask that you would now come into my life and give me a new one. Come into my life now and lead me, please. In Jesus' name. Hey, if you made that decision right now, I want to encourage you just to click right there on, on one, of our, one of our sites and let one of our host teams know. Click you received Christ. Maybe you just click you want prayer. Maybe you just tell people in the chat, hey, I received Jesus. Or you can pull our app out and you can say you received Jesus today. We want to do that because this is a beginning point. We want to help move you forward in this relationship with God so that you don't fall into magic thinking, so you don't fall into these other things, but you get to know the living God who has saved your soul. Would you let us know? We'd love to connect with you in that way. Otherwise, otherwise, guys, God bless you. And let us push aside and lay down all of these things. And let's pursue Jesus with all of our hearts as he's given us this wake-up call.